Welcome to DIY for Business. It's Russ and Greg with you. Today, we are talking about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So, Greg, I, I really like that we're doing this topic. I think this is a, this is a great topic for us to uh, talk to business owners about. I, I'm really excited about this. And, and Russ, I got to start off by just thanking for including me today. In this uh, in this podcast, <laughs> I wasn't sure you're going to invite me, but thank you very much. And I'm guess I'm not the only one that's invited. Exactly, you you are not. Uh, we are uh, uh, we have a, a guest today. So he's from uh, the uh, from Portland State University. He's an associate professor of psychology. Larry Martinez is joining us. Hello, Larry. Hi, how are y'all doing? Great. Thank you for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. What does a business owner need to be concerned about when it when we're talking about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, well, so there's obviously just the, lo- the local and national federal laws that apply to small businesses. Um, those vary, you know, depending on where you are, but having a really good understanding of what sort of legal framework you're in, I think is number one. It's one of those things that people think about and they most people consider themselves to be, you know, pretty egalitarian and pretty inclusive and all of those things. And it's one of those things that like with most of psychology, it kind of seems to be easy. Like it's like, oh, I understand this. You know, like we're we're really good at understanding um how people interact with one another. We're really good at understanding sort of some basic business principles. It seems like common knowledge and it seems like things that come naturally, right? And mm-hmm. what we know from psychology is that a lot of those things aren't natural. They don't always come through the way that we want them to. And there are a lot of, um, there are lots of different words for them, but basically these mental shortcuts that people take that just makes processing the world a lot easier and makes it um, a lot easier to navigate the world. And mm-hmm. that sort of false sense of security allows people to sometimes do things and say things and uh, engage in behaviors that may not be inclusive in a way that they're not even aware of, right? So if you think about all different types of people have all different types of experiences and different cultures and different norms and different expectations, it's impossible to really take that into account. So what we do is we bring our own culture and values and norms and experiences to bear and sort of assume, because that's the easy thing to do psychologically without really thinking really deeply about what where other people might be coming from. And it seems to work for the most part, right? That's why these mental shortcuts exist. It's why they are adaptive. But um, it's really understanding and appreciating the fact that sometimes those shortcuts don't work out very well and that they can get, um, get us into trouble either illegally or interpersonally because we've created an awkward situation or potentially a hostile climate. So I think it's one of the things to keep in mind is just being open to the idea that there might be things that you're not even aware of that could pop up and being really open and mindful and appreciative of learning those other perspectives and not, not reacting in a way that's really defensive, right? And I can talk more about that later, but that's probably the, the main sort of like just being open-minded and not not reacting in a defensive way. Yeah, and I think you, you, you've touched on it a couple of times where it's probably not, in most cases, a conscious decision that they're not, uh, you know, being inclusive. 
it, it's kind of an unconscious thing that happens, especially these small business owners. You know, they're starting their company. Maybe they're hiring people they've worked with in the past that they feel comfortable with, and they're not considering, hey, am I am I really creating a, a workplace culture that is inclusive? And, and especially when when the staff is, is small still, and you know you're you're still growing it. Um, how does somebody, you know, make it more of a conscious decision to be, you know, to have that proper inclusive workplace culture as you're growing a company? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's almost never intentional. And what we know from a lot of the sort of basic psychological literature is that when people, that people are more likely to act in discriminatory ways or say sort of discriminatory things when they're under a time pressure when they're multitasking, right? So it's just like a bandwidth issue that people are distracted and they're more likely to rely on these little shortcuts, right? So that's part of that's part of like sort of knowing that is understanding that, okay, well, I'm not being ra- intentionally racist, but I might be distracted in a way that um, doesn't allow me to really process things. In terms of really focusing and sort of avoiding those types of things, one of the things that we're starting to look at a lot more concertedly is some of the other research from different areas of psychology focused on mindfulness and just really being present in the moment and maybe engaging in meditation and just really being mindful of your environment and your sort of internal environment too. So your emotions, your cognitions, the feelings that you're having internally and the feelings that you're sort of perceiving from other people and taking the time to really think about and sort of honor those. And it sounds very sort of metaphysical and sort of like new agey, but um, from a research standpoint, that seems to be a really, really good way of just slowing down, centering in and thinking about your position in the context that you're in and how that might be impacting other people. So I think it doesn't sound like rocket science, but being mindful about what's happening around you is a really good starting point. You know, Larry, I'm just wondering in your research that you've done for this, you know, does communicating or stating that inclusion is one of the company goals, do you think that's important? I, w- I would think that's important for everybody within the organization to kind of understand that this is something that is a conscious decision. It's something that we want to focus on and make sure that we're promoting the right type of environment within our uh, with that within our company and maybe just stating it and having it in writing helps that. Yeah, it's one of those like necessary but not satisfactory kind of situations. I think that most organizations, especially new ones, especially sort of entrepreneurial types of ventures that are just starting in this day and age, it's almost a requirement in terms of competitive advantage to have a diversity statement, an inclusion statement. A lot of them have anti-racism statements that are all kind of separate, right? And it can be, it can feel a little bit like overkill, but it's what most organizations are doing. It's what I see a lot of organizations doing. A lot of the consulting that I do is reading through those types of statements and seeing if they are actually inclusive in the way that they're written. And that's, I, I think, something that, again, goes to this point of most people don't it seems like common sense. So they don't always have the training and the awareness of how the words that they're writing might impact all the different constituency groups that might be reading them. So 
I think getting buy-in from community members on those statements, um, lots of different people, lots of different identities, lots of different characteristics, just to see like, are you included? And are you included in the way that makes sense from, you know, somebody with your experience is really key. Um, We've been doing a lot more of this, like, it's called participatory action research, where we go and do research with the community members in a way that is designed to help and benefit those communities. Um, So it's not just swooping in and like collecting data and then taking it away and getting publications or writing grants or whatever. It's working with communities to try and further their goals as well as, you know, our sort of scientific research questions. And I think that that kind of practice, that sort of like community-minded social responsibility perspective for any organization is really key, right? Like all organizations kind of exist within the communities that they reside in and being good community partners, I think includes including people in the community and making sure that they're doing it in a way that's um, not just, oh, what's the word? Not just um, well-intentioned, but also like well-executed. Yeah, and I would guess if they're if they're going through that process, they're going to get a lot more support from the community as well, too. Absolutely, and we see you know those types of efforts. It's hard to quantify, like in terms of return on investment, those types of things. But all the research suggests that that goodwill translates into um, you know better quality employee, better quality applicants, better um, word of mouth, better. Um, you know, financial performance in terms of people just wanting to patronize those types of organizations. So diversity and ideas, you know, you've got people with different backgrounds, different outlooks on life. Uh, you, you mentioned experience, you know, making sure that you have a role that, that, uh, you have the experience for. And I think of like kind of, you know, multi-generational diversity as well, because I mean, I've had, I've had friends that have said, well, you know, I'm, I'm in my fifties. I I don't even know why I would apply for a job. I don't think I'm going to get it because they're not going to hire me because I'm going to retire in 10 years or I'm going to retire in five years or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. And aging is a really interesting sort of sub population, right? So there's these like older adults and workers, and it's one of the most acceptable stigmas, right? So in terms of like, oh, we know we shouldn't be racist and we know we shouldn't be heterosexist or homophobic. Um, And there are clear social norms about that. But it's pretty socially acceptable compared to these other groups to be kind of ageist and to be like, no, you're too old or like you can't do it or you're not good at technology or like whatever it is. So Yeah, I'm curious about that. You just said something really interesting, just perked me up. That's why I had to interrupt. I'm sorry. You you said something about the age and technology, like they're not up on technology. And and I could see some people feeling that way. It's like, oh, they're over a certain age, they're not up on the, the latest technology. And I and I think that stigma is is out there. And I think other stigmas are out there. Like a certain group is not good at a certain thing. And you know, whatever that may be. And and it and it really influences, negatively influences people's hiring decisions. And I just wonder. How do we go out and inform people that, you know, don't feel this way and, you know, really do your due diligence in your hiring process? 
that's the million dollar question, right? <laughs> um, is somebody going to pay me a million dollars for that question? <laughs> probably, it's probably worth more than that, actually. If I could answer um, it, huh? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really, it's really, really difficult because it's a cognitive sort of decision-making process. You're trying to, especially with small businesses, you're trying to make the best decisions. You're trying to get the, good, the best people. And sometimes that doesn't always translate into the most diverse pool. And I think that one of the things that is really, really key is making sure that people are doing their due diligence in terms of trying to widen the applicant pool. So like trying to recruit in outlets and in places and spaces where more diverse applicants might be there. There's a big misconception with um, affirmative action policies that it's like, well, we're going to find the less qualified minority applicants and hire them over the more qualified majority applicants. And that's not the intention. Unfortunately, that is how a lot of organizations interpret it. And then they get called into court. And then those are the big cases they get kind of publicized. And then public opinion is that like, well, look, this is how it's, this is working and it's unfair. And that would be unfair. But what affirmative action is designed to do is to widen the pool, right? So you're engaging in affirmative sort of like proactive efforts to find the talented minority applicants. So then they're represented in the pool. And then the idea is that then they would be selected, right? So that is really hard to do. And if you think about, you know, most managers, they got to hire somebody. Usually they don't have much time. They don't, interviews are costly. They take so much time to do. And it's like enough. I want to I actually flip it a little bit. And we were just talking about hiring, but let's talk about firing. Because let's say somebody is just, for whatever reason, is determined that, uh, you know, the owner or the boss wants to fire an employee, but they're the only representation of a certain group at that organization. And I've talked to so many business owners and they're fearful of terminating a specific person because of a potential lawsuit. What, what, how would you go about uh, consulting with uh, an organization about terminations? Sure. Um, I mean, those types of situations, it really comes down to documentation, right? You have to, there's probably a um, set sort of performance improvement plan in place. Or like, there's a way of off-ramping people in most organizations, and if there's not, then you should make one for these types of situations, right? right? So policies are boring, but these are the types of situations where you want them to be in place because, you know, I've, I've dealt with this myself, you know, it looks like this might be a discriminatory sort of thing, but here are all the instances of, you know, this employee not meeting expectations. The expectations are clearly outlined in the job description, these are the deficiencies, these are the things that we've done to try and work with them. And it's just, it should be plain that this person doesn't deserve to be working anymore. You know, it comes down to job performance and nobody should be retaining their job because they're doing a bad job, but because they have some minority identity that is sort of protecting them, right? Again, that's not the the purpose of this. Um, so I think documentation is really important. Um, and I think just being really clear and communicative the entire way, you know, is nobody should, I think in general, nobody should be surprised if they get fired or let go. 
And, and you know, I think uh, policy is really what is the, the, the big message here. It's like you want to treat everybody equally um, by having written policies so that you, you know, kind of know what the standards are when you're going to let somebody go. Oh, well, you know, there's this sort of notice, then there's this sort of notice, and then this is your final notice. You know, if you've got some sort of set policy for all of that, then yeah, you're not going to have those surprises. Because I think that's where the, the real problem comes in is when all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, I'm just going to randomly let people go. I used to work in radio and it was like, okay, it's Friday. Who's going to go today? <laughs> it's like such a, and nobody likes that feeling of, you know, oh, my job could end today. That's, that's not cool. <laughs> so I think having that policy, it, it does help to make for a better workplace. Hey, we're going to take a, a short break. We'll continue our conversation with Larry right after this. You know, a great way to promote your business is a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So you're listening to a podcast and we're telling you to make a podcast. How cool is that? Yeah. Well, okay. Where do we do it? We do it on Anchor. And why? Well, because they do all the work for you. They distribute the podcast. You can edit your podcast right on your phone or within your computer. Uh, everything you need for a podcast is right there in one place. Just go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And welcome back to DIY for Business. It's Russ and Greg with you. We are joined today by Larry Martinez. He is an associate professor of psychology at Portland State University. I always feel like, you know, when, like we had Layla on the show, who's also a psychologist, I always feel like I should be like just spilling out <laughs> everything, all my <laughs> problems, all of that. Well, I see you. I see That's you for after. We, ha we have an amazing after well, show. I see you on my couch right now. So you're kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm laying back. I'm <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Larry, you know, I, I'm really curious about how is, you know, what's the best way to support, you know, employees so they feel, um, you know, involved, included. And I think, you know, our, our mm -hmm. business owners that, that listen to the show, you know, they're always striving to you know, create a, a more positive workforce. And I know you've done a lot of research into allyship and it, it's kind of cutting edge stuff that you're finding out. And I'm, I'm just curious, what can you share with us about allyship? Yeah, sure. And luckily I'm not that type of psychologist, right? There's no counseling, there's no therapy. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I know. <laughs> and it's a big misconception. Like when I say like, I'm a workplace psychologist or I'm an industrial organizational psychologist, people are like, well, what does that mean? You do therapy in organizations? It's like, no, we do, basically we do the research that hopefully informs like HR policies, right? That's like a really general way of, of saying it. So it's a research-based position. Um, and what we've been, what we started with was um, really just trying to understand what coworker support means in organizations. So we've been doing lots of research on like underrepresented, under-researched, stigmatized populations, identities, stuff like that in workplace contexts. A lot of the research is kind of just based on like white middle management, <laughs> white collar kind of populations. So we're kind of pushing against that. And what we found over and over was that Coworker support was really, really important in predicting really positive attitudes. So, you know, to the extent that people feel like they can be themselves at work, that they can be authentic, they don't have to hide, you know, certain aspects of themselves around their coworkers, that leads to really positive organizational outcomes, you know, good 
um, performance and commitment and lower turnover and stuff like that. And we were trying to figure out why. And what the why was, was coworker support over and over. It was like, oh, to the extent that my coworkers are validating and affirming of my identities, that seems to be like the mechanism that explains why that relationship is there. So several years ago, I was like, okay, well, let's look at coworkers. What, what should coworkers be doing? How can coworkers be supportive specifically in terms of behaviors? And that was the start of my dissertation work, um, specifically trying to understand how to confront prejudice, right? If somebody says something that's a little bit discriminatory or racist or homophobic or whatever, what words can you say as a as an employee in order to address that in a way that doesn't create backlash, that doesn't exacerbate the confrontation, that doesn't take agency away from the people that you're trying to help, right? Like there's a lot of nuance to these sort of situations and they happen in the moment and um, people kind of freeze, right? That's what we found. Um, One of the main things is that people generally understand when prejudice and discrimination is happening, it's easy to recognize and people generally understand that it's bad and people shouldn't be doing that. And they generally understand that somebody should do something and to correct those sort of norms from taking place. But then people kind of fall off. People don't know exactly what to do or how, what to say or how to say it or whether it's even their place to say it, right? So there's this sort of lack of knowledge and a lack of education and a lack of training in terms of what do I do, right? I know that I should do something, but I don't know what to do. So We've done lots of interviews, lots of focus groups, lots of experiments, surveys, lit reviews to just try to understand what this dynamic is like, specifically in a workplace context, right? Some people have looked at this in educational contexts or in counseling kind of contexts, but never before really in workplace until recently. And what we've been finding, what we, what we did eventually was... Um, identify those discrepancies. So there are some behaviors that everybody kind of knows are good and supportive and helpful. Um, But then we tried to identify those discrepancies as well as terms of like, well, what do people who call themselves allies and who consider themselves to be supportive do that the people they're trying to support are identifying as not being supportive or as being stereotypical or as being ostracizing or, or high or like um, further tokenizing them. Right. And there are a lot of instances where people say like, oh, well, you know, this, that or the other thinking that they're being supportive or thinking that they're being uh, friendly. And it's like, oh, but you're highlighting a, a characteristic of me that makes me feel like I don't fit in or that I stand out or that I'm that highlights the fact that I'm not like everyone else. And that discrepancy is really, really key because it's not something that people are aware of. And it goes back to my earlier point about people are generally well-intentioned and they sometimes say and do things that they consider to be normal and appropriate. And just other people don't find it to be that way. And that's, it's really kind of heartbreaking because everybody's intentions are in the right place. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of a big overview yeah, I could see that being really challenging because it is kind of a nuanced type of thing, like you were saying, because you want everybody to be authentic and, you know, be who they are. Yet if somebody kind of unconsciously says something in a way that makes them feel like they're standing out for being authentic and being that person that they are, then that that may not go over right. It's it's might be 
super touchy in certain situations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that really inspired what we ended up doing was creating a workshop to train people on these types of things and to actually go through different scenarios and to watch videos and to do these role-playing exercises to really get into that mind space and not just the mind space, but like the actual physical space of having to interact with a partner um, to try and engage with these sort of really difficult situations in a relatively safe environment, right? It's not a real, we're giving them prejudicial things to say to one another and then they have to respond. But the reason that we're focusing on that is because if you look at the research in the organizational science literature, diversity training doesn't work very well. Um, And organizations spend so much money trying to work on this, right? And I think one of the things that we've sort of come to realize is that, you know, diversity training traditionally focuses on subtle bias, implicit bias, you know, and the general message is like, well, don't be racist or don't be biased or don't be prejudicial. And what we know from other sort of similar campaigns, is like, don't smoke, right? Everybody knows smoking is bad for you. Just say no. <laughs> but people still smoke, right? right. And it's like, mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is take a much more like positive psychology approach and say like, well, we're not going to focus on what you shouldn't do because again, most people don't even know that they're engaging in these sort of things. Let's focus on what you should do and what sort of behaviors should you engage in and what sort of perspectives should you bring to these type of contexts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't call it a diversity training. We don't focus on the things you shouldn't do. We really try and focus on like this is, and we don't focus on just minorities either broadly, you know, whether it's racial minorities or whatever, because it's not just about that. At the, at the core, it's kind of like, how do you be supportive for other people? How do you be an ally, whether it's somebody who's a minority or not? There's, you know, there's a, an understanding that people who have stigmatized identities probably need allies and help more than others might. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody's had kind of a bad day at work where they could use somebody to help them, you know, and they could use somebody to be supportive of them. So just trying to like universalize that experience and just break down a lot of those barriers. Cause people hate diversity training because the assumption is that only racist people go to diversity. Training, you know? <laughs> so right. We don't even address that, right. you know, <laughs> you know, okay. So I've, I've got a question for you. If you have, let's say a person on your team that has a disability of some sort, and, you know, you're sort of asking them if they need help or you just kind of just jump in and try to help them with something because of their disability. Is, is that doing the wrong thing or are you doing the right thing as a business owner to help? It's a, it's a really sort of, I mean, I think communication is really important um, at every phase of this. Because one of the things that we found in our research was that, you know, people sort of take on this identity kind of as like an ally and it's like okay I'm gonna go help and I understand privilege and I'm gonna use my privilege to help people who don't have as much privilege and as much power and what you what you can do is end up sort of ironically reinforcing these power hierarchies that you're trying to dismantle by sort of coming in and saying like I have power and you have less power so I'm gonna save you that's not leveling the playing field so Mm -hmm. you know I think one of the things that we touch on is the concept of like consensual allyship and like 
asking, like, do you want help? Do you need help? Do you have this, you know, so just being allies in ways that empower the groups that you're trying to be allies for and not sort of assuming what is needed. Right. 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 Well, and I think that, you know, boils down to just a good flow of communication between you and your team. Well, communication can get really strained as well, especially lately. Like if you think about the last two years or so, race in particular is just very difficult to talk about, even among people that are well-intentioned. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of groups that have had things happen in their workspaces where there are a lot of hurt feelings and there are a lot of it's just sort of touchy, right? People are kind of raw at this point. And mm-hmm. it's really, people are kind of not hypersensitive, but they're really unwilling to sort of be um, kind, <laughs> uh, kind of <laughs> unwilling to, to sort of give the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's like, I think there's kind of, and I'm speak, I've been living in Portland, right? So Portland, that's the context. But um, right. what I see is just like, people are so hurt that they jump to conclusions sometimes. And it's like, okay, whether you're a minority person or a majority group person, I think it's just really important to come with an attitude that's really optimistic, that's really um, assuming the best of intentions and assuming that people are going to do and say the wrong things and and assuming that we're going to forgive one another for when those things happen. So I think that most employees want to get along and they want to be able to have good communication. And it's just sort of creating that inclusive climate where those difficult conversations can happen, but nobody feels safe enough to do that. So it's sort of this weird chicken and egg phenomenon. So for our business owners out there that are kind of just getting started and, you know, they have all the best intentions, what general advice would you provide them to kind of set up set their company up for success when it comes to inclusiveness? You know, I think probably the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, in my field, we always talk about this like scientist practitioner gap that there are people who are doing research who are on the cutting edge of this sort of information, but they're not applying it into organizations. Right. And that's, that's one of the things that I really like about Portland state is the motto is literally let knowledge serve the city. Right. So we're, expected as researchers to use what we know. And that's why I'm here on this podcast, right? Is like, if I know something that could be helpful for other people, then I'm going to take the time to do it. Um, and I think that it goes sort of both ways, right? So I think that people who are experts in this need to be reaching out to or be making themselves available to organizations. And I think that organizations need to be also reaching out to the scientists and the researchers. And there are you know, like we're busy, everybody's busy, but there are PhD students, right, who are also experts and who would love internships and case study projects. And, you know, my students work all the time with organizations here in Portland, providing feedback on their DNI policies, providing feedback on their recruitment and selection procedures, providing recruitment or um, feedback on all aspects of these types of things. You know, they go with me to these trainings and they do the trainings with me. And they're happy to do it, you know, like this is part of their training and it helps them with their professional development and it goes on their resumes and all of that. And it's leveraging what we know, you know, so I think that any opportunity to reach out to academia, to the scientists, 
they should be willing to work with you, you know, on some level. So I don't think that it's free. You know, I usually try and get funding for the grad students because their funding isn't as good as what they deserve. But um, if you want like the best information, go to literally the experts, you know, and I think that that's, it can get really cloudy because a lot of people have consulting firms and they, they make their business by doing this, but it's, you know, it's the researchers that really kind of know what they're doing and, and want to help as much as possible, but we're busy doing the research. So we don't, you know, I always kind of joke with people. It's like, I don't have, I have this training, but I don't have a business degree. (laughs) You know, I don't have a marketing person (laughs) or like a website developer to go and do this. So, you know, it's been sort of grassroots up until this point, but I think that there are a lot of opportunities. um, Even just people that I know in academia that do this type of work that would have resources available. Yeah, I I thank you for that because I, I don't think most business owners would have thought to go that route to get advice and to, to, to learn more, they probably would have gone to a consultant versus, you know, going to a, a professor or, you know, going to the, the local college, university to get support. And I think it's a great resource. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's smart. And if people, if somebody that's listening wanted to reach out to you, Larry, is that something that they would be yeah. able to do? I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. So just Larry Martinez, Portland State, my webpage will come right up. Um, my website is LarryRMartinez.com, I think. <laughs> That's how bad I am, right, in terms of marketing. You need to listen to our podcast about marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're gonna, we'll are gonna send you a link to that one. <laughs> we did one on websites, too. So, <laughs> Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, no. Thanks again for having me. Take care, Larry. All right. And thank you for listening to DIY for business. Also, thank you for subscribing. And I'm going to go ahead and thank you in advance for rating us. If you've done so already, I appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, please do. It does help us. And share our podcasts wherever you can. Hey, it's a business podcast. LinkedIn's a great spot to share. <laughs> do that. All right. Uh, the information that we give you on this podcast is advice. You know, it it might work for you. It might not. We got to be honest with you here. You know, this is information that that we're just trying to share with you. Our best interest is helping your business, helping you grow. Again, thank you for listening. Please subscribe. We'll talk to you again next week. Yes.